Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory. If you haven't already subscribed, please catch us wherever you love to listen to your podcast, from the Relevant Radio app to Apple, YouTube, you name it, we are there. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and give us a five-star review to help other people discover the podcast. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Welcome to Trending in our weekly Gentleman's Hour today on Trending. We're going to talk about how dads can catechize their toddlers. Simple little tips that will come in from some dads. I want to share with you ways dads where you're maybe wondering, how do I help with bringing my kid up in the faith? We'll talk about why men are protectors the impact of abortion on men, and we'll be joined by Janet Morana. Janet Morana serves as the executive director of Priest for Life and the co-founder of the Silent No More Awareness Campaign. I've grown up since a little girl in the pro-life movement, and I've known Janet a very, very long time now. And Janet, I'm so excited to have you join me today on Trending. Thank you for taking the time. Well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. And yes, I've known you since you were a little girl. Janet, when uh, some years ago, I heard a part of your story because you often talk about the pro-life issue and contraception, the impact in our culture, which we're going to talk about, especially abortion's impact on men. But you have shared bits and pieces of your story over the years, and I thought it was so relevant to the challenges of many couples, women and men are facing today with the impact of a husband's porn use on the <coughs> wife. And I've heard parts of your story. And if you're willing, I'd love to unpack a little bit of the perspective that we rarely hear, the voice of women and how uh, pornography use on the part of a man, the part of the husband can impact a wife. Could you share with us a little of your story? Sure, that's fine. Um, <clears throat> well, first of all, to put everything in perspective, uh, I was married in 1975. So you can see the era <laughs> of when I got married. Um, in uh, 70, I think, da, 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 72, that's when uh, birth control became legal uh, for uh, single people. Up to that point in the United States, you could only get access to birth control things like the pill or a diaphragm or other devices if you were married and a doctor prescribed them. But there was a Supreme Court case, Bad versus Eisenstadt, that was the year before Roe v. Wade in 72, that made abortion legal for everybody. I mean, not abortion, uh, contraception <laughs> for everybody. Uh, so by the time I was got married, I mean, I was a virgin and, you know, obviously wasn't thinking about the pill. But of course, it became apparent of a lot of my friends were getting married. Everybody was just going on a birth control pill because, you know, if you wanted to uh, not have kids right away, that was the thing to do. There was no, there was no NFP back then, and the only thing was what they called the over the mother, which everyone laughed about. Okay. And so, um, you know, I was the oldest of four children in my family. I helped being a caregiver a lot for my younger little brothers and sisters. And so, I kind of didn't want to have kids right away. I wanted to be married for a year or two, and so I went down the birth control, you know, path. Uh, very quickly. Uh, it seemed like a great thing. And in fact, the, the priest told us 
at our pre-cana that if you had a good reason, you could take the pill, which I know that's horrible, but that's the kind of advice we got back then because people don't realize there was a real dissension in the church after Omana Bete in 68 that, you know, you could go on one side of the church and you could tell them you were taking the pill and be told, well, that's okay if you have a reason, they, you know, no big deal. And on the other side of the church, oh, that was a sin and they would be guiding on why you shouldn't do it. So it depended on what priest you went to, what advice you got. So you can understand the confusion <laughs> that was growing rampant in the church. So the first step down the slippery slope is taking the pill. Um, because, <clears throat> see, unlike NFP, you're, you're taught to know your body. The husband's taught to respect his wife more. And it's just a whole thing, you know. <clears throat> but with the pill, it's, you know, they can, you can have sex with your wife as, as much as you want because you don't have to worry about getting her pregnant. You know, it's kind of crazy, but that's the mentality you're dealing with. And so I entered my marriage on the wrong foot, so to speak. You know, um, my husband was the only person I, like I said, I was a virgin. I only had sex with. Um, but pretty soon into the marriage, I realized that, wow, wow he's pretty obsessed with sex. <laughs> you know, um, even his cousins were, the other male cousins in the family. It seemed they used to get together and watch, you know, por pornography. Mm -hmm. Back in those days, you have to understand, but back in the 70s, first of all, Playboy and these other risque magazines were not out in the so open normal. in the newsstand. They were kind of behind. And if you wanted them, you asked for them and they put them in a brown bag like for the men and gave it to them. You know what I mean? So it was very discreet like that. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> there was no such thing as um, like, you know, I, I grew up in New York. So if you went to Manhattan, I guess you could see triple X movies and all that. But other than that, they had um, VHS tapes came out not too long after <laughs> into my marriage and apparently i didn't know this but one of my husband's cousins i called him like the porno king basically the 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 blockbuster of porno movies he had a whole drawer full of them and they used to like like a living library they used to mm -hmm. like <laughs> borrow these movies and pass them around again you have to understand this is before the internet all right so this was the way that men um observed pornography and because of that that goes into their look at sex within the marriage because they just think like in these porno movies you can have sex as often as you want as many times you want with with your wife that's it like you're on call so to speak and so you know our marriage pretty much was deteriorating <laughs> the high spots were when i had my kids but in between that it, it was not nice it was not fun and so you know i wanted to go for counseling he thought there was nothing wrong with his behavior it was all me. I was I was the prude. There's something wrong with me. I was crazy. And so, of course, our, our marriage eventually fell apart, you know, because he didn't want, want to get help. But to talk about men today, it's even worse to worry because now with the Internet, it's like the doors to pornography are flung, flung wide open. Um, you know, you hear these stories, right, about men in certain big companies that suddenly they'll find out, oh, they were watching porn and it becomes a big scandal. But basically, you know, for the privacy of their own home, they could sit at their computer or on their phone, okay, because a lot of the men watch pornography on their phones, uh, and they could be doing it all the time. And it it really takes away their respect for their wives. You know what I'm saying? Because they they, they mentally shift into this well i can watch this thing and now i want my wife to do that with me you know what i mean and it becomes instead of really this love of your wife and and this intimate act together it becomes a kind of like on demand sex on demand mm -hmm. you know
and unreasonable um, the expectations placed on women I and mean, even what we're seeing on yes. young girls today when they're in early sexual relationships because of the widespread porn use that like you said is available at a person's right. fingertips today yeah and so so that it's a real problem and i and i think that the the problem is that it's and the other problem is too you know the church doesn't talk about these things okay you don't hear <laughs> that you know it's a sin to look at porn <laughs> you don't hear about that do you i mean and so if a wife is being subjected to this within her marriage she feels all alone all alone mm -hmm. who am i going to talk to who's going to understand me and especially nowadays that you know sex is just so out of control all over the place and uh you know people doing nfp even couples who are going through pre-canon now i mean i always think like the church you know we got to get our act together because what do they do one afternoon you know or one saturday if you're lucky and they don't really t tell i mean these couples usually sitting around at a pre-cana they're some of them have um you know um they're living together openly, you know, and no big deal. And they're not supposed to be doing that. So it's 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 very bizarre. Mm -hmm. it, it really I, is. I do want to hear your thoughts on this because I know there's a lot of conversations surrounding, you know, entering into marriage and conversations about pornography and what the state of it is. You know, many people talk about how, you know, it's normal. Many people are looking at it. Is it necessarily an addiction? Well, you know, if if you're looking at pornography, that is a huge indicator of a sex addiction, not just any addiction. But right. when I see many young people today, Janet, I'm astounded by the number of people who are okay, even within the context of, you know, people who have, have their faith, they want to get married in the church, who are okay with getting married when there is porn use at the time of engagement and at the time of entering to that marriage. And, you know, many people will say, oh, well, you know, I'll get married and it'll get better. But we see even if for a time the pornography use slows, it does usually end up picking back up as a coping mechanism for stress or something later on because it's become an outlet it's become a tool and sometimes the woman is filling that need or that tool for a time and so i'd like to hear your thoughts especially for you know men who are looking at getting married right now or women who are considering getting married why you should not get married if there's porn use at that time and wait to either heal that or really reconsider yeah well again it's because they will end up objectifying their wives, treating them like objects. You know what I mean? That's what will happen. And the wives will basically feel helpless within this marriage. Even if they love him so much, they'll just feel like, you know, they make you feel like what's wrong with you. Understand that it's all the wife's fault, not their fault. And so therefore it has to be addressed early on. And uh, there are, you know, you can go for counseling. There's groups to help point addiction. Um, you know, there's things you can do you really can do to help address the topic. And it really should be addressed during the pre-caner or during your engagement period, because you're not going to fix it later on if you can't fix it before you, before you get married. It's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just like anything else. You know, what, whatever faults your fiance has, they're bringing those into the marriage. So, you know, if there's things about that person that drive you crazy right now, you're not going to fix it later on. They're going to come into the marriage with that baggage. And you can't think, oh, I'll change him or I'll fix it. It just doesn't work that way. Um, so you really need to address these things during your engagement period. If you have to uh, delay them, delay the wedding, mm -hmm. push it back mm -hmm. until it is dealt with. Because, And the same thing goes you know, with abortion. It's another topic that they do not bring into a pre-canid discussion. 
I mean, they should talk about pregnancy loss, both for the, mm. the man and the woman. Has I don't even remember it being brought up when I got married. I mean, our pre-keynote, oh, it was terrible. You know, a terrible marriage prep for right. those events. But I don't even remember abortion or any of that being mentioned. Uh, now that you mentioned right. it, or, you know, what if you had children already or whatever that might be. You know, I think that, you know, part of what you just said really stood out. I've always said that if you're not chased outside of marriage, you're not going to be chased inside of marriage. That doesn't mean that you might not have struggled before. But if you're not actively practicing and living out that virtue of chastity before you marriage you're taking unchastity into your marriage whether it's pornography sleeping around you know fail failing at custody of the eyes whatever that might be and so that healing is so important but one for the man to heal from the pornography use with counseling spiritual direction accountability and software filtration you know things like covenant eyes and integrity restored are excellent resources but also healing for uh, the woman who has been experiencing what is a true betrayal trauma that can lead to a lot of uh, doubt and really compromising the integrity of that relationship going right into the marriage itself right well well and that's exactly it because uh, you know and again <clears throat> you know the shame of it is that this none of this stuff is addressed in the pre-cana uh you know conferences that these couples do marriage prep uh and to me that's that's real deficient and you know when you talk to clergy about this they say well you know we go by the diocesan guidelines and if you talk about someone in the di diocesan level well this is what the bishop conference has advised and you know uh, you know it's very if if you want to look at it this way we have two vocational sacraments foliotas and matrimony right so if you want to be a priest you're studying anywhere from four to eight years don't you full-time study to become a priest marriage one afternoon on a saturday one free cane <laughs> and you're done i mean and that's raising the future of the church raising the future of the church i mean for goodness sakes to me they should have to go for 12 months marriage prep once a month for 12 months and it could be done you could have a different topic each month and it doesn't matter when you get engaged you jump into the cycle and there it goes round the clock again and you can't plan your you can't get married at least for a year a year engagement and uh, 12 classes I mean, NFP should be covered for several weeks where mm -hmm. you really learn the method, where you really hear some testimonies from couples who are using NFP, you know, and then you go into the pitfalls of marriage. You, you mm -hmm. have one session on uh, pornography and there's some good experts. Um, uh, what's his name? Dr. Peter Klopanis has written, yes. you, could, you could Google him. He's written so many books on this topic. And, and about counseling and, and reaching out to couples and how to heal pornography addiction. It is addiction. Pornography is an addiction just like gambling is and alcohol and drugs. All, you know, it's, it's all, it's an addiction. And until you face the fact that uh, being obsessed with pornography is an addiction, and that's the reason why it's very hard to stop someone who is addicted to pornography because it is an addiction and unless it's addressing counseling you're not going to stop it it's got to exactly. be taken very seriously very that's seriously. janet morana the executive director of priest for life and the co-founder of silent no more awareness you can find her work is silent no more awareness at silent no more awareness.org and healing resources covenanteyes.com filtration software integrityrestore.com and bloom for catholic women you're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app.
Welcome back to our weekly Gentleman's Hour today on Trending. We're going to talk about how you dads can help with catechizing your toddlers. Uh, maybe you're wondering, how do I bring my kid up in the face? Well, we've had some really neat tips come in from many of you dads that I wanted to pass along. We'll discuss why men are protectors. And if you were just w- with us where we were discussing the impact of a husband's porn use on the wife, I want to make sure you get those resources for a hope and healing uh, from the brokenness, the addiction, the use of pornography. IntegrityRestored.com. That's IntegrityRestored.com is an excellent resource. And if you are a woman who has experienced betrayal trauma from uh, a relationship or a spouse who's looked at pornography, please check out BloomForCatholicWomen.com. We'll post a link on social media. Just follow me at Timmery, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E, and we'll have all those links there as well as in the episode notes for today's show. Joining me now is Janet Morana. She serves as the executive director of Priest for Life and is the co-founder of the Silent No More Awareness Campaign. Janet, we are seeing a wave across the nation in renewed conversation about abortion. And one perspective that is not discussed enough is how abortion impacts men. You, with your work at Silent No More, deal with men all the time with regard to the harm that has been done to them in addition to the women, their part that they played in the abortion. Can you tell us a little bit more about what's happening for men in the connection to abortion? Sure. Well, first of all, with the men, there's two sides to the coin. First, we have the men who didn't want their wife or their girlfriend to have that abortion. She was the one who entered the idea of saying, uh, I want to have an abortion. And they tried to talk her out of it, begged her not to have the abortion. And she went ahead and did it anyway. And I can tell you horrible stories, men mm-hmm. crying outside the abortion clinic, yelling, please don't kill my baby, please. You know, horrible, horrible pleading stories. Um, they couldn't stop them from going ahead with that abortion. All right, that's one side. The other side, it's where the the wife or the girlfriend gets pregnant. She tells the man and he says, well, you're going to have to have an abortion. And, or sometimes they say something like, well, whatever you decide, I'll support you either way. Well, that's the last thing a woman that's in unexpected pregnancy needs to hear. She wants to hear, well, sure, honey, you know, we weren't planning maybe to have a baby, but no, it's our baby and we'll do this together. We'll get through it. As soon as you say, I'll, I'll support whatever you want to do, that's oh, that's acting like there's an option to kill the baby, right? Like an abortion is an option. So <clears throat> for those men who either paid for the abortion or told her to go do it any, you know, or, or I'm out of here and all these different lines that they have said, um, they also are responsible for the death of their child. So now we have these men. Very often, they will push that experience deep inside of them. I had one father say, well, yeah, it was like I put it in a box and I put it up on the shelf and I pretended like it never happened, the abortion of my my child. Until they're married and now their wife is pregnant for the first time and they're being congratulated. Oh, you're going to be a father. How wonderful. Yeah, this is your first baby. And as soon as they start all that conversation, it like a light bulb goes off. Uh-oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I was a father before. Oh my gosh, you know? And when you when you look at the behavior, and you, people can go to abortiontestimony.com. You can click on, you know, men in abortion and all the male, uh, the, the guys' stories will come up. <clears throat> they talk about things like sometimes they abuse drugs and alcohol 
mm-hmm. uh, to, you know, uh, get rid of the pain. Like I said, they stuff it away deep, deep inside, put it up on a shelf in a box, but they are hurting and they're not acknowledged to hurt. So they do other things. So they abuse sometimes drugs and alcohol, just like a lot of the women do. They will become uh, workaholics. They'll mesh themselves in their work, work extra hours, just so involved, like the Energizer Bunny on the jaw. Why? Because they don't want to have silence. They, want, they don't want to have to think about that abortion. Um, they get involved in addictive behaviors, gambling, pornography comes up again. I'm sorry, Tim Murray, but it does. Um, they get involved in these addictive behaviors. And this is what happens with unhealed abortion in men. Uh, until they hit, crash and hit bottom, or like they, like I said, they come to grips of now they're in a happy marriage and they're looking forward to having a family. She is pregnant, and oh my gosh, this is not the first time I got someone pregnant, and now they think of that child that would have been maybe by now uh, a teenager, and uh, mm-hmm. this is not my first child, mm-hmm. and they need to deal with it. You know, um, <clears throat> if it goes unhealed, they will have just like women who have unhealed abortions going into marriage and then going into giving birth to their first child, supposedly, not their first child, but a child, they all have bonding issues with the child. And so will the men. You know, they they just have trouble being dads. Why? Because they haven't dealt with this unhealed abortion. Um, and in the Silent and More Awareness campaign, the men actually now give testimony. They hold signs and say, I regret lost fatherhood. Uh, because that's that's what they come to grips with. And they do go on Rachel's Vineyard retreats. I, I mean, I have been uh, ministering to people on Rachel's Vineyard retreats where you have men and women there together. Uh, and it's beautiful to see when a couple can go through that healing journey together. Um, it, it's, it's just a beautiful thing to see. And if, it, if it's healed, then they can enter into being a dad and they can be a good husband because they've healed that abortion. But unhealed? It creates all the other problems just so that, like it does for women who haven't been healed from their abortions. And just to throw that resource out there for anyone who's maybe listening now and you've been through an abortion, whether a man or a woman, that healing is so important that you're talking about, Janet. So rachelsvineyard.org is that resource to start that healing process. <clears throat> to go on that retreat, to be with other people who have been where you have been, people who understand, and you know, especially being Catholic, praise the Lord, we have the gift of the sacraments and reconciliation. This is all a part of that journey and opportunity for healing, to move forward, to heal you know, broken relationships and those relationships with your children or now spouse, you know, who may have had no part in the abortion from years ago. Uh, Janet, you have silentnomore.com, and there people share their testimonies and i know a lot of people when they hear and maybe are impacted by you know hearing these stories they say i want to share something and can you talk a little bit about the importance of receiving some of that healing before diving into that public advocacy of sharing your abortion story right well anyone who speaks for silent no more uh we have a basically like a procedure um first of all they have have to go through a healing program uh, we insist on that uh, because we don't want them speaking out of their pain, but out of being healed and then in a safe place in order to share a testimony. Uh, we insist that they've told their family because we can't let someone get up in public and tell their story, especially now with social media. Their story could end up any place. And imagine if you, the first time you find out that your 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 wife or your husband had a prior abortion is when you see it on the internet somewhere right. or your children find out about it. So no, we make sure that they've told their family 
they've gone through healing and that they are in a safe place to share their testimony. Because when you think about it, they were already taken advantage of by the abortion industry. We don't want to take advantage of them. We want to make sure that, and not everyone who's had an abortion, not everyone who's gone through healing is called to share publicly their testimony. Certain people are, but not everyone is. And so, um, but if they want to read testimonies, they could just go to a simple page, abortiontestimony.com. We have a beautiful search engine there. They can read all kinds of testimonies and click off the kinds you want to hear and read about and you can and share them because they're up there with full permission to use. And also, too, there's another webpage they can go to, abortionforgiveness.com. If you put in your zip code there, that will show you where the nearest Rachel's Vineyard is and other abortion recovery resources right within that zip code. And that's a very useful uh, thing, Timory, because suppose, you know, I'm talking to you and uh, let's say uh, you're out in California and suddenly <clears throat> you hear of a friend in St. Louis had an abortion and needs healing. Well, you can pull up that resource, abortionforgiveness.com, put in your friend's zip code, and then you can refer them to that help. And that's why we have created this kind of like easy way uh, for everyone. And even I, I encourage churches to put this in their bulletin in a permanent yes. spot that appears every single week. Hurting from an abortion, there is help, resources, and forgiveness. Go to abortionforgiveness.com because now you're showing them we understand the pain you're feeling. We understand that mm -hmm. here there's help available. That speaks volumes, really, it does. And that <clears throat> healing, we need to get healing to women because we know that many <clears throat> abortions today are repeat abortions. And so if we can work on that healing process right away for women, the likelihood that they will go through the scourge of abortion again and the loss of that child's life significantly decreases. And so I know it's easy, you know, when you know someone who has had an abortion to maybe, you know, be quiet about it and not dive into immediately trying to help with that healing. But these women and these men so desperately need healing. And so these resources, which we're posting links to on social media, just follow me at Timmery, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. We're also tagging Janet Morana from Silent No More. These resources are so helpful and needed for men today. Uh, Janet, especially for maybe men approaching other men, have you seen, you know, ways where men have maybe started that conversation? If they notice something's up or perhaps suspect or know there's an abortion there, I find that this isn't a topic that necessarily would be as easily broached by men toward one another. <clears throat> well, you know, men, I think, have, um, what would I say, more difficulty than women do to talk among themselves about very sensitive issues, you know. Um, the easiest thing I, I think to do is any men listening to this, um, you know, program, if you see some of the guy friends you know that seem to be troubled, you can say something just casual, like, you know, I was listening to the radio the other day, and I heard this program about uh, pregnancy loss. And they were talking about abortion and how, and that doesn't affect just the women like we're hearing right now in the media, but it affects guys too. Imagine that. And, and see the guy's reaction. Maybe he'll go, really? Like if, if he shows just a spark of interest, then he has kicked the door open. For you to open up the topic a little bit more with him you know what i'm saying or even yeah, anger yeah. <clears throat> yeah anger being a sign too if there's anger there that can also be a sign that th there's some brokenness going on with regard to the topic right yeah there's anger issues are a big thing and when people talk about you know june the 24th when we saw the overturning a row and we saw all the uh rage from the other side these women who were just violently carrying on mm. in the streets and 
screaming and the Jane's Revenge and Ruth sent me, all this stuff. That is all abortion trauma. A lot of those women have had abortions, they haven't been healed, and therefore they, 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 their reaction is just like, rah, because you can't take away from them what they thought was their right, uh, and, and they have to keep justifying it and justifying it and justifying it, you know? So uh, it's very, very sad. And that's why we have to constantly, constantly be offering the healing resources. And it's got to start in the churches. The problem, I think, Timory, is that there's silence in the pulpit, and there's also silence in the church bulletin about it. If they would just put in the fact, you know, why can't they put down pregnant and in need, pregnancycenters.org. Because if they put that simple web page on down, they go there, put in their zip code, just like the other one, you'll see where the nearest pregnancy resource center is. And just like hurting from abortion, put abortionforgiveness.com and they can get help. When you don't talk about these things, people sit in those pews. If they've had an abortion, they think no one understands the pain they're in. And there are men and women sitting in your churches that are hurting. And while they might be coming to services and to mass, they're not going to receive communion because they're afraid to go to confession. And unless we start opening the door more for them, they're not going to think that there's a path to healing and forgiveness for them. Yes. They're just not going to think that. The resource is silentnomore.com. That's silentnomore.com. Janet, thank you so much for joining us to talk candidly about hope and healing for men and women from the pain, the brokenness of the loss of life, motherhood, and fatherhood in abortion. You can find Janet Morana at silentnomore.com. She serves as the executive director of Priest for Life and the co-founder of Silent No More Awareness Campaign. Posted links on social media as well to silentnomore.com. I'll be right back during our weekly Gentleman's Hour. We'll talk about men, what you can do to help bring your children up in the faith, and why you as men are protectors. talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Welcome back to our weekly Gentlemen's Hour here on Trending. If there's ever a topic you'd like to hear discussed on the show, let me know. I'm happy to take it. Just reach out to me on social media. You can find me relevantradio.com forward slash Timory or at Timmery, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E on social media. Hey, November's almost here and we're going to be celebrating the lives of our friends and family who have passed and pray for their entry into the kingdom of heaven. Join your Relevant Radio family in prayer from November 2nd through the 10th as we offer a novena for those holy souls. Submit up to 20 names of your departed loved ones at relevantradio.com souls now to November 10th. When you submit the names of souls to be prayed for, you'll also receive reflections from Father Rocky each day of the novena to help you enter more deeply into prayer. Add the names of your loved ones at relevantradio.com slash souls and join us as we pray for them during Mass, the Divine Mercy Chaplet, Family Rosary Across America here on Relevant Radio. We've been talking a lot recently about raising our children in the faith, the importance of passing on the faith. And I've especially been discussing being a newer mom. My daughter's just going to be two in December. We're expecting our second baby girl 
And I've really been thinking about this a lot over these first couple years of being a parent and knowing how children have such a natural affinity toward the faith. They pick it up, they grasp it. Simple concepts and even challenging concepts such as the Trinity that is challenging for us adults, but in simple ways can be taught and presented to children. Now, Grant, I've not gotten to the Trinity yet with my daughter (laughs) and explaining any of those theological truths and mysteries. However, there have been a lot of things I've shared recently that she's really picked up on. And I want to talk about some of the incredible ideas and tips that fathers have been sending me to help in catechizing their children. I know fathers, you know how important you are as the spiritual head of the home, as the model of faith. In fact, we know the studies are very clear. If dad practices his faith, the child into adulthood is very likely to practice his or her faith. But if dad doesn't, even if mom has a strong faith, it's very, very likely that that child will not end up practicing their faith. And so here are some fun tips that people have been reaching out to me. David from California is a father of four, and he said one way to catechize, is, especially when they're little, is to read stories, read the Catholic, the biblical stories. I was thinking about what great advice this is because the power of story is very prevalent in our culture. We know the influence of movies and books. But a dad reading and bringing to life the story of Daniel in the lion's den, David and Goliath, and you know, animating it with his voice and his actions and movements, that's a really great place to start in simple ways. I think one fantastic tip that I really, really, I think, appreciated uh, to, again, bring those stories of God and his salvific power and the story of redemptive history, salvation history, to the little hearts and minds of these children who can fall in love with them. This actually brings a funny little debate between my husband and I. So we have this great story of David and Goliath by Ignatius Press and Magnificat. I'll include a link to it. Love this book. And my husband and I had been reading it separately to my daughter for a couple months, and I realized that when he was reading it, he wasn't saying that Goliath the giant died. He said, oh, Goliath is sleeping. And here I am talking about how Goliath's dead and David chopped off the head of Goliath. And we were both a little astounded by our different approaches with reading to our daughter. It was really, really funny. And I loved and appreciated the gentle heart of my husband in not reading to our one-year-old the death of David. But at the same time, I was thinking about how it's easy for us to want to shield and protect our children from different ideas, even that are scandalous and challenging when it comes to our faith, but how we can present a healthy perspective when it comes to death. So we're on the same page now when talking about death and David and Goliath and even chopping off his head. Uh, But especially as we come up on, uh, and I know this is a morbid connection, but as we come up on the feast day of the Holy Souls, uh, to really have that well-rounded approach and helping our children to understand, respect, and appreciate death and to have faith in the world to come, to have faith in God and faith uh, through the way we are called to conduct our lives through a true relationship with Jesus Christ, because that's part of what we're building with our children. You know, so many people today say that, wow, you know, I, I just didn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I always was told rules, and so many people fall into Protestantism instead of the Catholic faith of their upbringing or into nothing at all. And in these early years, we have the, yes, the potential to share, you know, theological truths, but we have the ability to help to build that love of Christ, that personal relationship 
that is really part of what a one-year-old or a two-year-old, you know, in those first early years can begin to grasp. And story can be a part of that love and respect of understanding God who's working in the lives of these people who has a personal relationship with them. Another dad wrote in, Jim said that he tries to take a couple annual father-son retreats with his children or events just throughout the year where he really uh, ends up engaging in a particular way with each child and their faith journey. Even mentioning, you know, maybe going to an occasional daily mass on a Saturday or another day during the week and taking that kid or all of them out to breakfast, but also working on that one-on-one and, you know, hey, do you have any questions about, you know, church and Jesus and, you know, inquire and really encouraging that inquisitive mind, I thought was a great tip. And as I keep thinking about the role of fathers and religion and passing it along, I can't help but think of St. John Paul II and how St. John Paul II has spoken to the powerful witness that his own father had on him when it came to the faith. His own father who knelt and would pray and he'd see his father as a young boy, he'd see his father praying every day, kneeling. And he was able to see that in the midst of all the brokenness his father experienced, such as the loss of his wife, the loss of St. John Paul II's brother, that in the midst of all of that, he had that faith, but also that humility, especially as a man to kneel before the King of heaven and earth and to submit his hopes, his fears, his joys, his gratitude, everything in adoration to God. How powerful of a witness that was for St. John Paul II to see his father doing this. It's really the simple things that we tend to overthink, reading stories kneeling and praying, building those relationships, having those conversations, setting that example, that it's easy to overlook these little eyes are watching, yet what we do has a tremendous influence over them. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. I want to talk about why men are protectors. The story came out over the last couple of weeks, I mentioned it here on the show, that the Biden administration is requiring that men who identify as women still register for the draft. But if you're a woman who identifies as a man, you don't have to register for the draft. The transgender community is pondering this. And it made me really ponder that question of, well, why are men protectors? Why have we in every civilization up until the 21st century understood this as a fundamental part of the male role? Well, we could limit the conversation to physiology, anatomy, biology, how it makes sense, such as the build of a man's shoulder being wider and broader to carry a stronger load, to take a hit. The narrowness, even men often have narrower, more compact hips and how the hip structure is made uh, as well for this endurance in terms of physical labor and activity. We could talk about even the way men and women think and interact differently. Hey, neuroscience points to it, not just me. These are all built in very naturally into the human body, mind, and soul. Not even to mention the dimension of the soul for a moment. But why in particular are men called to be protectors? Well, I want to talk about it from the perspective of men being called to serve by being a priest, a protector, and a provider. I think the words of St. John Paul II, who said the dignity and balance of human life depends at every moment of history and in every point of geographical longitude and latitude on who she will be for him and on who he will be for her. That St. John Paul II in his Theology of the Body saying that the dignity and balance of the world depends at every moment of history, 
every geographical longitude and latitude on who a woman will be toward a man and who a man will be toward her. This really does come back to protection and the role that men play in society. How we treat each other really does influence who we are. St. John Paul II in his Theology of the Body talks about how our, in our maleness and in our femaleness, these are two ways of being, two modes of being human. And this complementarity between male and female really does fuel and feed one another. And part of the way that we complement one another is through the different God-given roles we have. Priest, protector, and provider are ingrained in part of that masculine spirit, that masculine identity, and the masculine mission. So let's talk for just a moment the, of the role of a man as a priest. So often we think of, okay, that's Father so-and-so who celebrates Mass and maybe occasionally hears my confession, right? I'm hoping we're at least getting a confession once a month, though. That should be our goal. And yeah, all of us are called to the priesthood. We're all call, called to participate in the priestly dimension of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, men in a particular way. And what does it mean for a man to live out his priestly role as an individual within his family? Well, to be a priest means you're called to sacrifice, justice, and worship. Just look to the self-sacrifice of Christ on the cross. But let me share one example that I think is rather poignant when it comes to this idea of men being priests. We all know the story of the golden calf, the scandal of when Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments. And while he was away for that month or so receiving the Ten Commandments up in the mountain, he comes down and he finds that the people are now engaging in idolatry. They've taken all of their gold and all of their their wealth and they've built this golden calf because Moses was gone a little too long and now they're looking for something else to worship. Moses is infuriated and at one point in Exodus 32, he looks to the people and says, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together and went to Moses. You see, they took up their swords. This is when, this was precisely when the Levitical tribe, the Levites, became the priests, the tribe of priests. Before that, it was really universal that we'd see priests coming from all of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, it's particularly the Levites. Levites become the priests, and they become the priests when they take up the responsibility to protect. We read in Exodus chapter 32 that Moses says, Today you have ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, that he may bestow a blessing upon you this day. So in other words, the Levites became priests not because they were simply willing to pick up their swords, but because they were willing to take upon themselves the responsibility to protect, to preserve, and pass on the faith. So that priestly role has to do with sacrifice, justice, and worship, focusing on the capacity to pass on and build up the faith in other people. Not just to, yes, at times as a protector to pick up your sword and physically defend, but to understand that priestly dimension of the Levites stepping forward, yes, with their swords, but more importantly, entering into the priestly service, that priestly protection of the souls and the worship that need to be rightly ordained rather than disoriented and disfigured in the sin of the golden calf. That second dimension I want to talk about with regard to men being protectors is specifically focusing on the word protector. 
So often we think of being a protector, and justifiably so, having to do with physical bodily strength. And this is so important that we do understand that, you know, as a man, it's so important that you do have that agility, that capacity to really be nimble and have the, the ability to protect physically other people. And so we can reduce this protective responsibility to body, to our bodies as men. You can, but also there's a dimension of protecting from the perspective of the soul as well. The body, soul, mind, this whole perspective needs to be brought into perspective when it comes to protection. The protection has to do with the person I am and whether I'm protecting other people from myself or whether I'm protecting myself from those challenges that I myself struggle with. You know, the simplest ones, we were talking about pornography and betrayal trauma and the impact it has on women, specifically the wife. Earlier, if you weren't with me, please go and listen, relevantradio.com forward slash trending to catch the podcast or wherever you listen to your podcast, we are there. You can take us with you on the go. But to understand and see the impact of pornography use, a sexual addiction, a disoriented or disordered connection to sexuality can really be damaging in that relationship with others. That's not why protection has to do with physical protection, but it has to do with protecting your mind, protecting your soul from the things that can damage yourself and others and specifically damage your soul. This is why we have to understand that dimension of the human person, that we are a spiritual being and we're meant to be sacred, holy, and set apart for God and render ourselves as a living sacrifice toward God. And part of that is living out, especially in our current society, that virtue of sexual integrity, that is chastity. Now, that third dimension I want to touch on when we're talking about being protectors and that role of men to be protectors is the responsibility to be a provider. I know in the 21st century, there's a lot of contesting of a man being the primary breadwinner or the sole breadwinner, but always being a leader, a protector, provider, being a priest has been part of the God-given mission ordained by God and given this responsibility toward men. When I think about men being protectors, I think about this balance and understanding love and responsibility that when we love someone, even when we love ourselves, we take on a responsibility for ourselves and others. And it's a part of a man's honor. It's a part of his word. It's a part of his commitment to help in providing provisions for those entrusted to his care. In another respect, this isn't just the physical capacity to provide what once used to be, you know, being hunter-gatherers in a society. Now, it often can be in the means of a desk job or the very many and diverse positions that are available that look different from our ancestors' hunter-gatherer perspective that made very clear how men provide in a physical level. But on the spiritual dimension as well, it also has to do with the body-soul composite of self-mastery, of men having discipline, of men having focus on fighting distraction. Gentlemen, I know how distracting cell phones, social media, and all of that can be for you as well. That discipline, that self-mastery is so important so that you may see a goal chase after it, meet the needs of your family, provide what is necessary physically, monetarily, spiritually, in terms of your time, in terms of your conversation, to truly have the self-mastery, to be present, to provide what is necessary, whether it's physical and monetary or whether it's simple time and interaction. 
your gaze and perspective of your child seeing you. This is the eternal and the right perspective when it comes to being a provider. And it's an eternal perspective that you see. It's not just about what carpet we have, what home we have, how much I'm bringing in, but the perspective that you're providing for the body and soul of those entrusted to your care. And that does include yourself. I think when discussing this role of men as protectors, providers, and filling that priestly role that all men are called to fill, I think in particular of St. Paul. I love St. Paul. If you've never really really taken the time to read all of these letters we have of St. Paul and really pray and ponder with him, you'll see this profound masculine spirit that is present. Here's a man who, like everyone, has had some level of a conversion. His is rather, rather a profound, going from persecuting and literally killing the early Christians to suddenly this massive conversion that literally knocks him off his horse onto the ground. Yet he's one who we clearly know struggled in this battle to live out his faith, to be consumed by our Lord Jesus Christ and follow him. St. Paul himself was a priest. He was a protector. He was a provider. St. Paul's confidence in his God-given role and mission, we see strengthen and grow in his writings. Such as we look at, for example, 1 Timothy, as St. Paul is coming toward the end of his life and his final imprisonment. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where St. Paul is talking about this confidence, essentially, that he's having in his mission, understanding the role of sacrifice in his life, where he says, I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know who I have believed, and I am sure that he is able to guard until the day that has been entrusted to me. You see, St. Paul sees, yes, I'm suffering, and I'm not ashamed of it to be brought, essentially, to this lowly state, for I know whom I have believed. And I'm sure he, that is God, is able to guard until that day that has been entrusted to me. And then coming toward the very end of his life, we read in 2 Timothy as well, as well where St. Paul in his final imprisonment is saying, for I'm already on the point of being sacrificed. He said, the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. St. Paul sees that in all of his provisions and all of his priestly sacrifices and being that provider spiritually and physically for other people, that by keeping his eyes on the prize of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is a perspective, a perspective of faith that allows him to make it to the finish line. Dating, marriage, relationships, so many questions. This is Timory from Trending with Timory. Thursday is our weekly marriage hour, and we'll do anything and everything from taking your questions on dating, marriage, relationships, including experts in all areas of relationships to long-term marriage. We'll also dive into some of the most important topics confronting how to find true love today. So join me Thursday at 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.